Right. And uh, in case you haven't noticed, we're in Hamilton tonight. Uh, normally we're in Murphy. Uh, right now I'm trying to get us back into Murphy before the end of the semester. I've had some conversations with the administration. It seems like things that I in are kind of going well, uh, but keep praying about that. And uh, however that goes, though, I just I have to say again that the real strength and power of RUF and what is good about RUF is not the room that we're in. Um, it's not me, it's not our interns, but the real strength and power of RUF is the gospel. And it's how God works through his word and works through the gospel to change people, to make us new. And, you know, we could have RUF outside in the cold, we could have RUF in someone's dorm room, we could have RUF in, you know, the Dean Dome. The power of RUF and what's good about RUF is the gospel and Jesus' work through the gospel. And so, if that's at work, then it will always be good. And if it's not, then it doesn't matter where we're at. And so I just want to say that it's a pleasure to get to be up here and teach and preach and live the gospel and the means of the gospel with y'all week in and week out. And um, if you love that, keep coming, keep being a part of that, and you know, invite people into that. If it's good, you should give it away because it's free. But it's also really good. So we're going through the book of Acts uh, at this point in the semester. And if you don't know anything about the book of Acts, that's totally fine. It's the fifth book of the New Testament. There's the four Gospels that talk about the life of Jesus and what he does uh, to save his people. And then the book of Acts is the book that explains what Jesus is doing through his church as he continues to work and continues to save. And so tonight we're in Acts chapter 9. We're dealing with uh, a man named Saul and what it looks like when Jesus gets a hold of this man's life. This guy who'd been totally against him, who'd hated him, who'd been murdering his people. And what does it look like for God to be involved in his life and deal with him? So let's look at that together tonight. Acts chapter 9, 1 through 20. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound up to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord... I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here is authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. 
And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Lord Jesus, you are at work in so many wonderful and powerful ways. God, uh, you have been raised from the dead, you've conquered death, you've trampled on it as your enemy. Lord, you reign now from heaven. You do all that pleases you. Lord, you save people all the time. You heal people all the time. Lord, you walk with people through life. Lord Jesus, we pray that you'd be with us tonight in your power and your presence, in your love and your truth. Lord, to bind up the brokenhearted. Lord, not to quench the faintly burning wick of faith that lives in so many of us. Lord, to walk with those who struggle and doubt. Lord, to open the eyes of the blind. Lord, be with us tonight. Help us to see you and deal with you really as you are through your word. In your name we pray. Amen. I read a story this past week of a doctor, and he was doing an examination on a guy who'd been feeling a lot of pain on his right side right here, under his ribcage, and he got into the exam room with this man and his wife, and the doctor took out uh, the ultrasound to start doing the examination of what was going on underneath uh, the man's flesh. And he starts to talk to the man and just kind of make small talk with him and ask him, you know, how long have you two been married? And they say nine years. And the guy says, well, do you all have any kids? And he can immediately tell when he asks the question that he, kind of, he touched a nerve there. And the man looks over at his wife and she kind of grimaces and then he says, we, we had a son, he was two years old, and he passed away about two weeks ago. And the doctor said, I'm so sorry. Um, how did he pass away? And the man said he had, a, he had a liver tumor. And the doctor said, I'm sorry. And he continued the examination. And as he examined the, the man, he, he realized that he could see on the ultrasound on the man's liver uh, spots that marked it out as cancer. And he told the man and his wife, he said, I think, that, I think that your husband has cancer. And so they take him and they do a biopsy, and it is actually that. He has a tumor on his, his liver. And the doctor realizes, man, this guy had just watched his son pass away from a liver tumor, and he had had one the whole time himself. And it just shakes the doctor. Like, he, he sees sad stuff in medicine all the time. I mean, he's got experience, but it just really shakes him. And he reflected on why this was. He said, you know, I was raised to believe that hard work and discipline and enough effort could really solve really any problem that I had. Like the little engine that could had been kind of his mantra growing up. Like, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. Had just been the way he'd gotten through life. He'd never been the smartest guy in class. He had uh, had to apply twice to medical school before he got in. And yet, hard work, perseverance, going the extra mile, that had been the way he dealt with setbacks and with suffering. And he just wasn't the kind of person that could pray or kind of do yoga or meditate or anything that you kind of get out of yourself. His mom had gone to a Presbyterian church down the corner. His dad and him had sort of slept in on Sundays. But dealing with this man and his tumor and the fact that this guy was dealing with his own son's death from the very thing just shook the doctor to his core because when that kind of thing happened he realized you know there is no I think I can because you can't like you just can't 
all of his long-held beliefs were just totally exposed as being completely inadequate. And he just cannot shake it. So he goes back to the hospital. He looks the guy up, finds out what room he's in. And he walks up the two or three flights up to where the man's room is, steps to the door, crosses the threshold. And he sees, as he gets in there, the man's family and friends and the hospital chaplain gathered around the man as he rested in bed, hands held, heads bowed, praying. And the doctor said it was just something that was ancient and transcendent and fearful and beautiful. And he just had no words for it. Because he'd come to an end in himself. I read that story in the New England Journal of Medicine this last week. Because I think even the New England Journal of Medicine has got to encounter the fact that there comes a point in your life where competency and hard work just kind of come to an end. And you really can't go any further. Like, we all have to deal with that. And when we do, what will we do? How will we deal with it? I think our problem comes because we tend to go through life based on our own self-sufficiency, our power, our intelligence, our grit. But that's just not the way life works. That's just not the way that we can carry ourselves through some of the deepest, hardest problems that you can encounter. All, I mean, and we felt that this last week, didn't we, with getting out in the second round of the tournament? I mean, we have an incredible team who works incredibly hard, are super talented, with a Hall of Fame coach. All this effort, all this talent. And it's not enough. I mean, we feel this. It's just so easy to travel on our own way through life and think that we're going to be enough. And then we hit things and it's not. And tonight, as I want to look at the story of Saul, I want to look at a man who had everything his way And it wasn't enough. And he lost it to walk on a better way. The way of Jesus. So I want to look at this story tonight. I want to just ask two questions of it. I want to say, what is the way of Saul? I want to ask, what is the way of Jesus? What's the way of Saul? What's the way of Jesus? So, start. What's the way of Saul? As this church has continued to spread and grow, it's encountered opposition. People have persecuted it. We In last week's large group, we saw that Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was stoned to death. And at the center of that opposition has been a man named Saul. Saul is like a moorhead. He is brilliant. He is passionate. He's young, but people recognize that he's the significant leader. He's someone that thinks about stuff deeply and then makes decisions and starts things, and people kind of follow this guy. But in a way that is not like a moorhead... Saul is very angry. He's breathing threats and murder against the disciples. He was part of killing Stephen, the guy in chapter 8. Think about the picture of Saul here. Outwardly, he is super passionate. He knows a ton about the Bible. He's got huge chunks of Scripture memorized. He's a very devout person. He's off the charts intelligent. On the outside, he looks great. On the inside, he is super sinful. And it's a very different picture because he's angry. He's furious. And it all begins in his heart. And really that's all of us. Because doing is not at the heart of sin. 
this thing that distanced us from God and from people and from ourselves. That's not primarily about doing. But what is at the heart of sin is our desire. It's our heart. It's what we love. It's the desire to be righteous in our terms, to have God's authority over people and over our lives. This gets at the profound reality that sin is more than just what you do or think. It's tied up in who you are. It's how you travel through life. It's your stance towards God and people. It's the way that you go. As you go on your way with people and with God through life. Luke does an interesting thing here with kind of a play on words. Look at verses 2 and 3. Saul asked the chief priest for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them down to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Don't think of sinning against God as something that's primarily about what you do. Being opposed to God and sinning against Him is more about the stance of your heart. And that is tied so much more closer to who you actually are and how you go through the world. It's tied to how you walk through life. It's bound up in how you see yourself and the people around you. Which is why Jesus blinds Saul at first. And then when He heals him, something like scales fall off of his eyes. Because Jesus wants Saul to see that your sin is something that keeps you from seeing the world and seeing me and seeing the people around you. Sin is about self-deception. He doesn't know it, but Paul is an enemy of God. He thinks he's traveling on his way, though, and doing God's work as he's persecuting the church. Saul's way is that if you follow all the rules and you get the right internships and you're involved in the right causes and you think all the right things and you look fit and you show yourself to God and the people around you that you're someone that can be taken seriously and they can do serious work, then you're in. Saul's way is that if you look good on the outside, you're fine, and you can totally ignore the inside. But when you do that, you miss the central reality of your heart, of the way that you travel through life, the way that you see and deal with the world and with yourself. I mean, just look at the power here that Paul's trying to exercise. He's getting letters from his higher-ups so that he can arrest people and be the judge and the jury for people that he thinks need to die. Saul's heart wants to be in charge. He is on his way. Earlier in the book of Acts, the Jewish leaders have said, you know, let's take a step back and just kind of see where this Christianity thing goes. If it's from God, we can't stop it. If it's not from God, it'll kind of fizzle out. Saul does not want any part of that. He knows his way. He knows what needs to happen. He needs to be the one in charge. He kn- this is why enemies of God are not all mass murderers and corrupt politicians. But the enemies of God, those are people who are opposed to Jesus and His authority and who travel on their own way. I mean, do you love to boss people around? Do you love to put people in their place and live by this kind of very narrow, tight set of rules that are really about you and kind of making people kind of more like you? Like You may be on your own way. Because the real pleasures of sin don't come from sex and drinking and corrupt money. The real pleasures of sin come from a heart that loves to walk in its own way. To be able to get what you want however you want to get it. And that can be with religious things, where you know you look down at all these non-religious people who aren't doing the religious stuff you're doing, and they're just not as good as we are, as though you, know, you can be good by the stuff that you want to do. Or it may be by our work, 
or our success or how free we feel like we are with ourselves and our bodies. But all those things come back to a desire to be above other people and to have power over others and to feel good about ourselves. And there's just so many ways that we can walk on this path. Some of those from the outside look totally acceptable. Some of them do not. Some will further your career. Some will hurt innocent people. But God does not judge people based on their appearances and their outward stuff. He judges people based on their heart, on their insides. By nature, we all want to judge. We just do. That's part of what it means to be sinful and be a sinner, is that we want to be in God's place and judge other people. And I know that it's true, because we love to watch fail videos online. Who doesn't like watching people just totally wipe out on the internet? That's like 10% of all internet videos, right? Why is that? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, I I watched a, a video this week of a kind of Wheel of Fortune compilation video of people just totally screwing up on Wheel of Fortune. And there was one where, I guess it was like a couple's night or something, where these these couples were staying up there and trying to solve the problem. And this guy solves, and the answer is, gondola ride through Venice. So, you know, you take the boat through the canals of Venice. And the prize was that they would get to go to the country where Venice was. And so Pat Sajak, the, the guy who's in charge of Wheel of Fortune... He looks at the guy and he says, you know, tough playing around. Like, let's check your geography knowledge. What country do you think we're sending you to? And the guy blurts out, Paris. And, <laughs> and everyone looks at him and he realizes he makes a mistake and he goes, France. <laughs> and his wife looks at Pat and she says, do we still get to go? <laughs> I think they did. I, I couldn't tell from the video, but I, I'm hoping so. Pat Sajek seems like a merciful kind game show host. Uh, We love those videos, but part of what makes it so easy to enjoy those videos is that we get to sit safely in the seat of judgment and laugh at other people. Because it's just the bent of our heart. I mean, I don't assume everybody here is a Christian, and if you're not, then and we are so glad you're here. But Christians can be really bad about that in a college town. I mean, think about how you judge whether or not someone is a mature Christian or not, right? Like, we live in a college town, there's tons of parties in this town, and we have a tendency to judge whether mature or immature as a Christian by whether or not we go to some of those parties. Like, let's say you go to a party, and we tell ourselves that we're mature enough to handle going to this party. And then we begin to look down at the people who don't go. And we think that because we go to parties, we are better, more mature, more spiritual people. And sadly, some of us begin to kind of conform to the party scene and drink when we shouldn't drink or over-drink when we shouldn't drink because we think we need to be a, a witness by drinking and showing people that we're okay by just kind of doing what we want to do and we're free in that. But the same is also true for people who abstain from parties. And we can think that we're more mature and better because we know we don't go to parties. But this is all about what you're doing on the outside, isn't it? Because you might not go to a party because, you know, you didn't get invited. Or maybe you were underage and you're afraid you get caught. But man, you wish you could have gone. But just based on your outside circumstances, whether or not you go to a party or not really doesn't tell you very much about your heart. Not only that, but when we focus on the outside things, we tend not to 
see the stuff that we're actually doing that does shape us in bad ways. Like, for instance, maybe you make basketball or getting a really good summer job kind of the center of your life. Like, if you were to get those things, your bracket would just be killing it, which is not happening right now. (laughs) But if you were to be killing those things, man, you would feel so full inside. And you would feel so whole. Or maybe a lot of what you're thinking about is, you know, wearing very trendy clothes. Or keeping your friends happy and kind of navigating our complicated friendships. And on the outside, man, that is pretty normal and not scandalous at all. But on the inside, as we go through life, and we kind of take these things in and judge people based on those things, and walk upon those things as that this is what's going to make me whole and make me feel full, we can be just as indulgent with them as somebody who's getting high or drunk all the time. It doesn't show as easily. I mean, getting hyped for your bracket or applying to 75 jobs over the summer is not going to make you throw up in the middle of Franklin Street. But God is not deceived by externals. God does not judge us in the way that we judge ourselves. He looks at our hearts and the way that our heart travels through life and how we see and deal with the things around us. And He looks at the whole of our life and the way that we go. So if that's Saul's way, what is Jesus' way? Look at verse 3 here. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Saul to have been going on your way to put these people in jail and then to meet Jesus and find out the people that you were putting in jail were actually his people the whole time? Like Saul knew the Old Testament. He knew that if you mess with God's people, you mess with God. And Jesus makes that super clear. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? God really humbles him here too. Saul had loved power over other people. And suddenly he's powerless. He's dependent upon other people. What do you see about the way of Jesus here? You see that Saul, though, is immediately in with Jesus. He doesn't have to go on a mission trip. He doesn't have to lead anything. He's not in because he cracked the code. Or he started acting right and then he got let in. Saul is out to throw people in jail and murder Christians. And immediately, Jesus lets him in. Jesus' way is the opposite of our way. Saul does wrong. Saul is an arrogant murderer. If ever there was somebody who didn't earn their way in, it's Saul. And yet immediately he's let in. He's baptized. He's brought into the Christian community for nothing. There's no hoops to jump through. He doesn't have to take a mission trip, like I said. He's just in. One day he's persecuting these people. He thinks he's so righteous. He thinks he's got so much going on. The next day, he sees how exposed he is to these things. How all of his righteousness was nothing. How he was blind. How he was a murderer. And how he's forgiven. Because that's Jesus' way. In case you didn't know it, Saul is also the Apostle Paul who wrote a serious chunk of the New Testament. Listen to what he says about himself here in the letter to the Philippians. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, 
As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's got everything that you would want. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. In terms of religious accomplishments, Paul had everything. Family pedigree, Pharisee under the law, strict, a persecutor of the church. There are no more gold stars that can be given to Paul. He's got them all. But compared to the righteousness that Jesus gives, what does Paul think of it? It's rubbish. The Greek word for that is skubala, which is a very salty word for poop. I can't say what the actual word is from up here, but it's super bad. I'm just going to let you fill that in. All of those religious accomplishments are poop compared to what God has given him in Jesus. And the same is true for you. Look, you've come to UNC, and everywhere you turn, there is someone who is better, who is smarter, who is more athletic, who's maybe prettier than you. And that is torture for us. Because for a lot of us, the good news has been, you know, if you're smarter or better than the people around you, that that would be enough. But what happens when it isn't? That you don't always feel successful or good-looking or important. What if seeing that and feeling that was actually God's good work in your life? What if that was God's work to make you believe the goodness of the good news? And to show you how blind you've been. That the gospel is good news, not because it's telling us that life isn't fundamentally about a competition. Where we win over against other people. But the gospel is good news because life is fundamentally about what Jesus has done for us. And what He is doing through us and in us even now. I mean, do you want to be clean? Or do you want to feel as clean as you are in Jesus? Then don't rely on yourself. And don't rely on your prayer life or your Bible reading or your accomplishments. Paul prayed much more faithfully than any of us. And is much more accomplished than any of us will ever be. And he said, all that stuff is poop. It's scubula. The good news is that God carries the burden of getting right with God. That he doesn't just make broken people whole. He makes them new. All the time. For free. If you come to Him, He gives you that very thing that you need the most. Which means that He can give it to anybody. If He can give it to Paul, He can give it to you. And you know, Christians tend to talk in terms of like, you know, grace is here for anyone who wants it. Which is true. But when we talk in those terms, it makes it seem like, you know, grace is sitting in the back over there, kind of waiting for you to walk up and take it if you want it. But the reality is, is that Jesus is who He says that He is, and if He is alive even now, then grace is not some sort of thing that's out there. Then grace is tied to Him and His person. And that He is active and seeking people, looking for people to save, to heal, to make new. That if He is alive and the gospel is true, then maybe the reason you're here tonight is because Jesus is seeking you out to make you whole. To make you feel as clean as you are in Christ. To bring you to Himself and to walk in a new way. 
Just look at what Jesus' life does to Paul and Ananias. Before Jesus, Paul would have killed Ananias. Ananias was terrified of Paul. After Jesus, Ananias heals Paul and calls him brother. That Jesus reconciles these two people. This whole story just begs the question of, what is your view of what God has done in your life? What is your view of what He's done? Look, you will never understand Christianity and why people get so hyped about Jesus until you get this. That God does not give good people good advice on how to get gooder. But God takes people who are dead and under the power of evil and who love to judge and love to hurt even if it's only on the inside. And people who think that they're doing the Lord's work even when they do those things. And He makes them alive. That they were dead in their trespasses and their sins. They walked in a way that was taking them from God. And He brings them back to Him. The gospel will never make sense to you or seem like really good news on your insides until you see that apart from God's work in your life, that you would walk away from Him. And you would walk in the way of death. But because of His grace, that you will walk with Him forever in life. That that is good news. And you've got to believe the first part of that in order for the second part to be really good. And y'all, there are so many ways to apply that, but for right now, can we just say that the lie of this place, the lie of the pressure cooker that we live in, is that you've got to do everything, all the time, perfectly. But if the gospel is true, do you know what that says to that lie? It unmasks it. Because it says you are never going to live your life perfectly. You are never going to do everything. You are never going to be whole through all you're doing. But Christ has rescued you. He's bought you. He's brought you from death to life and from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That if Christianity is true, then it means that however you feel about your life right now, whether you feel like it's in the dumps, or you know this week is the worst week ever, that your life will not just turn out okay, but because of Jesus it will be amazing. It will overflow with life and goodness. And so what I would say is take this and just do one thing. Not everything, but just one thing. Because you don't need to listen to the lie of this place where you've got to do everything. Just do one thing. Pick one person who's younger than you and consistently meet with them and grab lunch with them or coffee with them. Ask them about their life. Pray for them when they don't know about it. And talk to that person about what's really going on in your life. Or read one psalm and pray for five minutes. Will someone devote an Instagram account to that experience? Probably not. But it's not for them. It's for you to walk on the way with Jesus. That if your life has been interrupted by God's grace, then that is a radical new way to travel through the world. And maybe the most radical thing about it in a place like this is it's not done in a pressure cooker, but it's done in a community of love where you walk through life with Jesus. I want to end with this. I heard this story this week. Uh, this young couple, they got to know one of their neighbors who lived on their street. And this lady was a little bit older than them and was super anxious 
all the time. She'd found out a few years before that she had this heart condition, and her doctor told her, you know, you could die from this at some point. And finding out about that had made her just more and more and more anxious, to the point even where she was more afraid of the act of dying than of actually being dead itself. She thought about it all the time. She cried about it in her house by herself all the time. This couple had prayed with her about it. She kind of grown up as kind of a nominal Christian, but really is really about a set of rules and you know you've got to get your stuff right before kind of you're in with God. And this lady was anxious and fearful all the time. And really all she had to turn to was herself and her own abilities and she she just didn't have those things inside of herself. And so she just felt empty and anxious and sad. And the wife invites her to this Bible study that's going on at her church, and she starts to come. And the lady feels like a sore thumb kind of sticking out, but she keeps coming, and these ladies love her and care for her, and she reads about Jesus, and she's prayed for, and she starts to really experience God's life and God's grace in her life. Until finally she just leaves a voicemail on the wife's phone and just says, you know, I felt so anxious the day that, you know, I know I go on all these walks by myself and try to die myself down, but I felt so anxious I went on this walk. And when I did, I prayed that Jesus would walk with me. And he did. And I don't feel anxious anymore. Because I think God walks with me in life now. Do you know that's God's offer to you too? That for your emptiness, for your anxiety, for your fear that you meet sometimes inside of yourself that, man, I do not have what it takes to get through life. And I'm judging other people and I feel judged all the time and I live in a pressure cooker. God's offer to you is to walk with you in the way of life and to do that forever. And that's our hope. And that's what we believe Jesus is pursuing you for even now. And so that's my offer to you tonight to know the God who walks with us in life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would walk with us, be with us, heal us and make us whole and redeem us. Lord Jesus, care for us and carry us. Lord, we don't have what it takes inside of us to do life apart from you. We certainly don't have what it takes inside of us to do life apart from one another. But Lord, knit us together in friendship and in love not just with each other, but with you as well. Open the eyes of the blind, heal the hurting, and Lord Jesus, make us new. In your name we pray, amen.